The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. continue to study John's gospel, and we've come to an epic chapter, chapter 17, one of the Bible's most important prayers, the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. We'll look at it over several weeks, and I read John 17, 1 through 5 now, as this is Jesus praying as he comes near to the time of his arrest. When Jesus had spoken these preceding words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. This is the Word of God. Twenty-five years ago, my home in Maryland did not have a garage. When we first moved to Maryland from a more northern state, New York State, we thought it was incredible that a house would not have a garage, but down there they don't all have it, at least in the lower price ranges. And so we had a big need for storage space, and I thought, get a shed. And I went and looked at the Amish-made, quote-unquote, sheds that were in many places and decided for the size I needed, they were pretty pricey. But I found out one lumber company sold shed kits, And I was intrigued with that and went and investigated the idea that they give you in one package dropped in your driveway every piece of wood, every shingle, every screw and nail and everything that you need to put a shed together with detailed plans. I thought, this looks good. I can save about half the money. So I bought it. And uh, that found me not too long after on a summer day with the pieces of this would-be shed spread all over my backyard like I was going to build a gigantic model airplane or something. And my neighbor behind me was a retired engineer. We had a bit of a relationship, and uh, I had already learned that he was a guy who spoke his mind about almost everything. And he was looking this over and uh, said, Oh, you're going to build that shed, huh? You're a preacher. You know how to build sheds? And he went on to express pretty open skepticism that I could possibly accomplish this. And, uh, well, he was bound. He told me, well, I'm off on vacation. I won't see you for a month or so. And I said inside my brain, when you come back from vacation, you are going to see the most perfect square, plum, already painted, doors hung, shed that you ever saw in your life. I'm going to prove to you that preachers can build sheds. And I did. And it actually came out quite well. I haven't visited my shed in a while, but I think it's still standing. 
and uh, it served me well. Well, the neighbor came back, and uh, to his credit, he gave grudging admission that, uh, hey, not too bad, neighbor. I think he is secretly thinking in his mind that he was going to see this crooked mess of a building, you know, like a funhouse building, all crazy angles or something, and uh, he had to admit it came out all right. Well, I confess to having a fair amount of sinful pride in that particular job well done and that see I showed you uh, and my glorious accomplishment of building a shed. Well, we come to one of Scripture's most exalted chapters here where Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father about a job he had to do, a job assigned to him that was as good as finished and sure to come out right before it was even done. And unlike my pitiful human vanity over being able to build a backyard shed, maybe the size of your bedroom, Jesus gloried in a task that spanned the universe, that spanned all generations of human beings who had ever come to live on this earth. And it was a task he knew that only he could do, and he could do it well. And the Father would ultimately get praise for sending him to do this great and unique task. We believe Jesus and the disciples, as this chapter unfolds, are near to the Garden of Gethsemane or maybe there. It's hard to say exactly where they are. They've left the upper room. We know that from chapter 14, verse 31, and maybe already in Gethsemane. But he prayed this longest recorded prayer of his in the Bible within the hearing of his disciples. He wanted them to hear it. And he wanted the Holy Spirit to stir up their remembrance later, as chapter 16 told us the Spirit would do, so that this could be reproduced for others to learn from. The prayer that we pray often on Sundays, almost every Sunday, that we call the Lord's Prayer, you know, you may not realize that there's no place that that is actually called the Lord's Prayer. That's just a name that men have given to it. It might be called the disciples' prayer, because that's what it is, a prayer for disciples to follow Jesus' instruction in what to pray. Some scholars have quite seriously suggested that if anything is called the Lord's Prayer, it should be John 17. But we don't need to argue over that point. Luther wrote about this. He said, although this prayer sounds plain and simple, it is in reality deep, rich, and wide, such that no one can really fathom the greatness of it. Here as readers or listeners, we are plunged into a dialogue between God the Son and God the Father. Think of that. A dialogue between the persons of the Trinity. Here we have nothing less than the origin of the Trinity's plan to bring about divine salvation. God the Son being charged by God the Father to carry out a plan that was formed in time immemorial past. And the more you study these five verses even, you find that the very core essence of biblical salvation is really sketched here in these verses. Now, believe it or not, I have five points today, but don't panic. I will keep track. I'm actually a little behind already here, but I will keep track of the clock. As a first point here, verse 1, we must mention God's glory, the big request that Jesus prayed for. 
You could paraphrase what he was saying here, what he was asking his father, that that night and the next morning and the two days beyond through the resurrection morning on Sunday, that God would allow his glory to be seen both in Jesus himself and glory to the Father as well. If, if I stood up and said, God, glorify me so I may glorify you, you probably would say, who do you think you are? You think you're somebody pretty important? That God is going to channel glory through you? Well, if I was saying that, it would indeed be arrogant or presumptuous. But this was the Son of God saying this, who was one with his Father. We ask, what is God's glory? It's a word we use, but I wonder if we actually know what it is. It's not really easy to explain. The Hebrew Old Testament word for glory is a word that signifies heaviness or great weight. Those of you who have a certain age to remember the 1960s or early 70s and the hippie era of slang would remember people saying, man, that's heavy. You know, that's big. That's, that's more than I can take in. Well, that's somewhat the Hebrew meaning of the word glory, something that is great and, and huge. In Greek, the word is doxa here in John 17, and it's the same word that from which we get doxology, an utterance of praise, or orthodoxy, which means a straight or accurate view of an issue. Relating to God, what we're saying is that glory is the excellence of God, the, the godness of God, if you can say such a thing, that which makes God so unique and divine that when we see it, parting the Red Sea or, or raising Christ from the dead, and we say, well, man can't do that. That has to be God. It's glorious because only God could possibly do it. Glory is a view of what makes God to be God, if you can understand that, the excellence of divine being. I was thinking this week, uh, not trying to get ahead of myself with Christmas, but I was thinking of Charles Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, because it contains one phrase in it. It talks about Christ coming to earth and setting aside glory. Remember that phrase, mild he lays his glory by? Charles Wesley was saying Christ possessed the excellencies, the splendor, the characteristics of God, and meekly, mildly, He set them aside in order to come into human form. He didn't stop being God. That's the wonder of it all. He was still God. But he set aside the visible part of it, the fact of you seeing him as God. And only in a few moments, like the transfiguration or a few other times, was that splendor of divinity actually visible in him. He willingly set aside his glory. But now here he is nearing the cross, And he's saying, Father, let the glory flow back through me. And let it be seen that what is about to happen, even in this terrible tragedy of the cross, let people see that this is you at work. So he was praying for the glory of God. But secondly, and in verse 2, and these points are related to each of these five verses, God's glory began in a prehistoric gift from the Father to the Son. This is a packed 
sentence theologically. Jesus said, you gave your son authority over all flesh. All human beings are under my command. Why? To give eternal life, not to all human beings, but to all you have given to him. Those you have designated to have eternal life, I will see that they get it. That's an amazing sentence. Theologians say it speaks of something we call biblically, the covenant of redemption, a contract between God the Father and God the Son before time, we would even think before there was a planet earth, before there was an Adam, before there was sin, God covenanting with his Son to save out of the mass of sinful humanity those he decided mysteriously for his own reasons to save. That's why 1 Peter chapter 1 can call Jesus the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. On a historical timeline, he didn't die before the foundation of the world, but the plan that included his death was a prehistoric plan. And so Jesus refers to this agreement or covenant that he had with his Father from ancient days as the keys of heaven were given to him to deal with as The Father and the Son designed they should be dealt with. They knew that all would rebel, but they knew that there were many, in fact, we would think billions of human rebels in sin who would come and believe and trust and be called to Christ for salvation. Now, this, of course, is the the great mystery. Many of you know the the great doctrine of the Scripture. We call the doctrine of election. God the Father determining who would be saved? And people raise their fists and their questions and their challenges and say, I don't understand that, so it can't be true. Well, guess what? I don't understand it, and it is true because Jesus Christ declared it was true. The Father gave into my charge those whom I was responsible to forge salvation for them. Ephesians 1.4 has Paul write about how God in love in love, not in cold mechanical calculation. God in love predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. And his design included something that was horrendous as you look at it outwardly, the cross and all its terrors and wounds and blood and everything about it that was so awful, the rejection where the son couldn't even see the face of his father on the cross. Nevertheless, this was a wonderful thing because it dealt with the crushing debt of sin for a great mass of persons whom God the Father had determined to save. This is not the time or place for a detailed argument about election here, but seven times in John 17 are these words, those you have given me. Jesus was a Calvinist, I'm sorry to tell you. He believed in divine election, whether you do or not. And you say, well, who are these people? How do they get qualified? Well, you want to know their names? Their names are actually written in John 3.16. They are everyone who is included in that phrase, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God left this mysterious to us, but he declared that it was his way. Those who would come to Christ, profess true faith in Christ, are his elect. That's all there is to it. You want to know who the elect are? Have you professed Christ? You are one of them. 
Remember John 6, 37, where Jesus earlier said, all who the Father gives to me will come to me. And he who comes to me, I will under no circumstance cast out. If you will come to Christ in faith, Call him your Savior and Lord. You don't have to ponder as if it's some great big mystery. What if I'm not elect? That's a dumb question. Will you come to Christ? Will you profess him and no other as holding the keys of heaven for you? You are one of the elect, or you would never profess that. You would never have that faith in the first place. That mystery is not solved for us, but it is declared to us third point in verse 3 here, I'm moving quickly today, is this observation. Jesus said here, all right, he's already said, you've designed, you've given me some people to give them eternal life. What's eternal life? This is eternal life, he says, that those you have given me may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. By the way, very interesting, this is the only verse in the New Testament where Jesus calls himself Jesus Christ. There are other places where he says the Christ or says his own name, of course, but he never calls himself Jesus Christ anywhere else but in this verse right here. And he's saying the glory of eternal life means something. It means knowing what may be known about God and knowing it forever. You know, we think about eternal life in terms of time, right? We think, okay, I live my life Ten days ago, we had our second oldest member of our church died at 102. Wow. We think, long life. Well, that's not much beside eternal life, life that just goes on and on and on without your body wearing out, without your soul wearing out. And that's what we think eternal life is, being in heaven for a long, 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 long time. Well, it's really not so much about time. Jesus is telling us here He says, here's what eternal life is. It's knowing what may be known about God forever. It's more about the quality of your existence than the quantity or length of it. We're told in many ways that when we come to be before the Lord one day, we will have Christ's borrowed righteousness. Our minds and spirits will know things as we are known Maybe we won't know everything. In fact, I would speculate that if God taught us everything, we would be God. But he will teach us a great deal. Our knowledge and our perceptions and our wisdom will expand a hundredfold in every direction when we come before God in eternity. But Jesus says here the essence of eternal life is to get hold of this Union with God as he chooses to reveal himself and to know as much as there is to know about him that he's going to let us know. Wow. The immediacy of God. That's what eternal life is. What can be better than that? And here's Jesus saying that that's the gift that those who are God's called ones are going to receive. Well, a fourth point, verse 4. Here we find that God's plan enacted by his son was as good as accomplished before it happened. You know, people can speak confidently. I I spoke, I actually didn't tell my engineer neighbor who expressed the doubts, why you just watch, I'm going to build this shed really good. But I told myself, I said, I'm going to get the last word on him. He's going to eat his skepticism. Well, here's Jesus before he's arrested basically saying, 
speaking of what he's going to accomplish in the past tense. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Wait a minute, Jesus, the work was in front of you. You haven't been arrested yet. You haven't gone through the whipping and the scourging and the beatings and the crown of thorns and the nails in your flesh and all of that. And maybe in human plane, we, we think to ourselves, was he speaking too soon, too confidently? Maybe he would break down under what was coming, and he wouldn't be able to bear up. He would crumble under the nerve-shattering physical and spiritual trials and the strain and the spiritual horror. But have no fear. Jesus, of course, came through all of that. And the final result of his huge divine undertaking here was sure. I have glorified you. I have accomplished it. As he went forth to gather up souls that God had given him going all the way back before the time of Abraham and Moses coming all the way forward to our day in the 21st century. Who could have told those disciples that he was, who were hearing this prayer that there would be Christians dwelling on these words that John would write down 21 centuries later. How could they have believed that or comprehended that? But we too are the souls for whom Christ finished his work. Wasn't that the last thing he said when he died? Remember? John 19.30, we'll get there, I hope. He, he gasped it as one, it's one word in the original language. Finished! That's the last thing they heard him say. And it was finished because Jesus didn't lose even one of all the souls he came to to rescue and bring to God. Well, if you've never heard a five-point sermon before, you've heard one today because one more point here. Verse 5, and I say this about it. God was glorified in a great restoration of glory to his Son. You see, Jesus had glory before. It wasn't like he was a stranger to glory. He was born in glory. He wasn't even born. That's, that's not a right way to talk about him. In fact, John chapter 1 opens by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus shared the glory of his Father as the second person of the Trinity. He always was God. He, didn't, he wasn't a Galilean. And you'll find people who teach this. They're liars and deceivers who will say, here's this Galilean peasant, and he grew up, and, and men, you know, overblew the story of him and, and inflated it and, and invented it, and, and so Jesus became God. No. No, no, and no. Jesus was God, who became man, never ceased to be God, but set aside his glory in a visible way, and then, because of what he accomplished, was glorified so that his godness, his divinity, was visible again. That's what Philippians 2 tells so wonderfully, that passage that we all probably are familiar with, Philippians 2.5 and following. It says, he humbled himself. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was God, but he didn't say, I have to go around showing it all the time. He was willing to set it aside, and because he died even the death on the cross, God, it says, exalted him 
and gave him the name that is above every name. He had that name before, but now men would know it so that every knee would bow and tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see who finally gets the glory? The Father. How foolish was my puny pride in trying to show off my neighbor, show him up that I could do something he didn't think I could do. And I was proud. I built a 10 by 14 shed that someday will be plowed into the ground, I'm sure, and disappear. Jesus came forth and secured eternal dwellings, mansions, they're called in some translation, dwellings for people to dwell with God eternally and look upon God and know God. You see, our chief goal in thinking about salvation, eternal life, is, well, what will it be like for me? That's what I find people, their questions about heaven are always, well, what will I do? Or will I know this person? Or will my dog be there? Or, you know, these kind of, all of me-centered How will me experience heaven? But don't we see that eternal life is about revealing God? It's about God's glory. God's glory exhibited through Jesus Christ. The sinless Lord Jesus dragged through the sewer of human sin and violence and degradation now to be lifted up and exalted and saying, here is God. Here's how God works. Isn't this amazing enough even for a stray Presbyterian here and there to say, Hallelujah! Look at God! He's the greatest God and the only God. I don't know about you, but our house is flooded with catalogs these days. I can't throw them out fast enough. We, we shop online a lot, so we're on every mailing list there is. And I think the other day we got seven catalogs in one day. I was flipping through one of them where it has uh, deluxe Christmas trees. So you can buy wreaths, you know, and trees, and artificial tree, and, but very lifelike and very expensive, of course. And I was reviewing these trees, not that I need one, but just looking. And, uh, oh, I could get a six-foot tree with 500 twinkling little lights on it sent to me. And I don't remember what the price was. But then I could get a seven-foot tree with a thousand twinkling little lights on. But then... And, and we have sort of a cathedral ceiling in our great room, so we could accommodate a nine-foot, nine-foot Christmas tree with 2,000 twinkling lights. And then I looked at the price, and I almost fell over. Two months mortgage payment, gone. Not going to happen. What's that relevant to anything? Well, maybe in my foolish imagination, I'm thinking, if each soul that Jesus Christ was given by his Father. could be a tiny little twinkling light that somehow in eternity will be exhibited on what the Bible calls the tree of life. Tree of life is in the last page of the Bible in Revelation. What if somehow our lives are going to be, a, each of them, a twinkling light? Billions of them. Billions. Surely. God's elect will will be billions, I can guarantee you that. Redeemed souls lighted from within by what the Bible calls the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Think about that tree, folks. 
Heimecker Schlemmer from New York, the exclusive merchandiser, has never seen anything like that. What a display of unending glory. John 17, the final prayer of Jesus, starts out in glory and ends in glory. And let me tell you this, when we hear Jesus pray to his Father about their joint project of salvation, the covenant of redemption, you should realize as a believer there is no greater ground of security in this shaky world of ours than that you might be included in this grand plan and purpose of the one and only true God. Thanks be to him. Father, we praise you. Truly, your salvation is glorious. We spend our time in arguments saying, oh no, election, I can't understand it. It's got to be wrong. It defies my will. Forgive us for all that folly. Here we see Father and Son discussing the root and goal of the matter. And we are raised to have a little view of what you see. Thank you, Father, for such a wonderful salvation that you and your Son decided to bring forth. We praise the one who accomplished it. We give glory to you, three-person God. In Jesus' name, amen.